0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On nights 2.7 and 106 FM.
1: APSA CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Are things always as bad as they seem? This really comes down to a question. It's a very personal question. What is your sense of the world? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? How do you feel about the environment around you? Say it out loud, just one of two words. Better, worse. Certainly the news has been getting gloomier. That is to say that there's a huge amount of scary stuff going on in the world. We've got two big wars. There's a shift to the right in global politics. The cost of money has risen substantially. Inflation has gouged out the wealth of the middle class. There's bad news everywhere. Well, a group of researchers has analyzed a billion newspaper articles since 1850 they looked at 170 years of newspaper articles and confirm what you already know that there's a huge amount of bad news in the world but here's the interesting bit what it shows is that there is a collapse in economic and non-economic sentiment over particularly the last 50 years so sentiment has turned very negative in the world despite a rise in general prosperity for most people in most parts of the world over that period of time. Very simple. The bad news sells. It doesn't necessarily reflect reality, but it certainly does reflect how we perceive reality. And that affects our outlook and the way in which we see the world. And the more competitive the news market has become over time, the more bias there has been toward gloom. And I think it's a really fascinating insight and it's something which I fundamentally believe. I really do. The World Bank today, warning that the global economy is probably gonna grow this year, good news but it will be growing at the slowest pace since the pandemic. The uh, growth is at 2.4% and it means that, you know, the impact of, higher interest rates are a major factor. Global trade is under pressure. Investment is still being hurt by the wars in Ukraine and the Middle East. Um, But yeah, there is an interesting signal. And another interesting signal, a different sort of perspective, I suppose, on the global growth story. And that is that the global airline industry is very much nearly back at levels of travel we saw in 2019. And it's very resilient particularly in the united states last year's growth rate there two and a half percent but iata now saying uh, airline traffic in november 2023 was at 99.1 percent of november 2019 levels so practically at november 2019 levels that's terrible for the planet it's terrible for emissions but a positive signal in terms of economic activity
0: the money show with bruce whitfield on 702 702.
1: well an outlook today from martin ackerman the chief economist at citadel and against that sort of backdrop where there's negative news flow yet there's still good global growth albeit a bit slower than previous years uh, airline traffic is recovering implying that there is plenty of economic activity in the world martin against this backdrop it's your job to try and give guidance to your wealthy clients of course And it becomes increasingly difficult to do because they believe a narrative that things are getting worse where, in many cases, things are, in fact, getting better. How are you reading the tea leaves for the year ahead?
2: Yes, good evening, Bruce. Um, I think you are 100% correct that um, there's a lot of challenges out there at the moment, a lot of headwinds. And a a bit of a, a deja vu, if you think about where we've been last year this time. Last year this time, you know, if you think about the consensus... Most people expected the world to see a soft landing, potential recession, the output for markets were quite bleak. Um, and now 2023, you know, we had another double-digit year for, for global markets. JC on its own did a close to a 10% return. So markets definitely performed much better than expected last year. I think the reason for that was, well, the U.S. specifically probably avoided a recession. Um, you could argue they probably delayed that. I, I don't think they're out of the woods yet. You know, we've seen massive increase in interest rates, um, but given the COVID stimulation that they had a couple of years ago, the consumers had a bit of a buffer that uh, helped them this time around in terms of not experiencing the impact of those interest rates. So we still think that this year, you know, it might be that it's just a uh, delayed decision. So that's why I'm saying that, you know, last year, most people expected a tough economic environment. And you could probably argue we're sitting with economic uncertainty 2.1 for this year as well. And then add to that all the geopolitical issues. Um, I think we've got more than 70 elections this year. So that's really going to add some fireworks to to the mix. Uh, And then one needs to navigate and say, well, given this kind of... um, call it, uh, I won't say a bleak economic outlook, but a challenging economic outlook, you know, what's the best thing to do for investors?
1: The thing is, we know what we know, and most often what we know is quickly priced into markets. And you kind of go, well, all of those things that you've said, we kind of know are coming or are around us, and there are some very obvious risks. What we don't know is what we don't know, and that is always what takes us by surprise, either on the upside, as last year markets um, saw a recovery on the upside in anticipation of rate cuts coming through this year as inflation was tamed a bit. Uh, I wonder whether, you know, all of the risk that we look at is less about the risk itself, but more about managing our emotions in the face of that risk.
2: Yeah, I know, especially if you are thinking about your own personal finance, you get quite emotional about it. And that is why it's so important to have someone that you can actually, you know, bounce ideas off in terms of what's the right thing to do. Um, I think, we know, for for people that are in the savings camp, put it that way, uh, we act uh, in an environment where at least now, you know, cash and fixed income is again offering some opportunities. Uh, Five years ago, you know, you remember the word, Tina, there's no alternative. Um, that was tough, you know. You you only had the options in basically the equity markets, uh, maybe bitcoin, gold, something like that. But you didn't get any compensation, keeping the money in the bank, offshore, especially or in, in government bonds. Now facing a, a very uncertain economic environment, at least the one thing that we do know is that, well, cash and bonds in most parts of the world is actually not that bad anymore. So there's that safety kind of or, um, uh, assurance that, you know, in this environment, you can actually allocate to those kind of assets, get a reasonable return in very, in a lot of cases, actually beating inflation, especially if you do it in a tax-friendly way. Um, and I think that should help investors a lot uh, going through this, through this year, irrespective of what equity markets might do or might not do or like you've said uh, if some black swan event uh, plays out or up or downside
1: traditionally investors at this time of the year have been told well you'll get probably about 10% this year so don't worry about it just keep throwing money into markets and over time, we keep getting told you should not be timing markets. You should be leaving money in markets and simply riding out the negative cycles. Are you suggesting here that people should be cashing in equity investments and putting money into fixed interest, or is it simply new money perhaps that should be going into uh, into fixed interest to try and get the best possible yield of money and minimizing risk?
2: No, I fully agree with what you said that it's time in the market and not timing the market. That's uh, very important. No, I think right now, you know, equity in any portfolio is part of your longer-term allocation. So, you know, you know that it's going to be volatile. So, longer-term, you want to make money out of that. Uh, This year, like I said, we think there might be a couple of headwinds. But that doesn't mean that you need to sell everything. Of course, you might just get the timing perfectly wrong getting back into the market. So, in a multi-asset portfolio, what we are doing right now is we will definitely be underweight equity or risky assets. We'll make sure that whatever we own is more defensive, so you know, low debt-to-equity kind of companies where they won't feel sure the impact of high interest rates. Um, but we'll keep that core allocation to to most equity markets going through this kind of environment. But like I said earlier, at least now the alternative is offering a very decent return. So where you might expect, uh, call it a single-digit return for equity markets this year well, in ESA, you can get very close to double digit in, in fixed income markets or in, in a, like an income portfolio. Um, and then adding to that, you know, last year, like I've said, for a bit of a surprise, uh, the economic environment didn't pan out as much as most people expected. And uh, we had double digit returns in, in global markets. Yeah. Now, a lot of those were um, AI, the Magnificent Seven. And that's another concern that I'm facing at the moment to say, well. How likely is it in 2024 that those companies will print another double digit return? I think um, one needs to be careful when you, when you start to um, extrapolate those kind of returns.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Thank you, Martin Ackerman, very much indeed. Martin is the Chief Economist at Citadel. Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by the winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spy Awards for the sixth year running. APSA CIB. APSAS a registered FSP. Well, slowly and steadily as she goes, I see SAA, once the mighty global flag carrier of the South African government, is reintroducing a second international route. Uh, It's, uh, of course, started Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, and is now adding Johannesburg, Perth. Three weekly flights to Perth and back again tapping into a steady expat market in that part of the world. It's gonna operate an Airbus A340-300, total capacity of 253. So a small proportion of business class seats, 38 business class seats and 215 in economy as it goes into a launch phase for this route from about May. Now I was looking at the pricing of this and this is quite interesting. As we see global air travel return to 99% of what it was in 2019, for a return flight to Perth, it's going to be 12,000 Rand, which in today's money is not that much, frankly. It'd be good for them to resume UK flights there. The cost of those flights nearly doubled since SAA stopped flying there. And that route, of course, the country's become heavily dependent on BA for direct access to Heathrow. So hopefully SAA gets its wings and expands them further.
0: 702.
1: Bruce is on The Money Show. Welcome now to the editor of the Financial Mail, Rob Rose, who's been watching the story of Tongart Hewlett and its implosion with a huge amount of interest. The Battered Sugar Group is on the market, business rescue process, and there's only one potential bidder now for Tongart Hewlett. It's a way far cry from the giant it was 50 years ago, company being beset by fraud and all sorts of governance issues. Rob Rose, the editor at the FM, has been studying this company for a very, very long time. And yeah, sugar's addictive. Uh, unfortunately, Tongart Hewlett has been considerably less addictive. Rob, there was a critical vote scheduled for today uh, which would really govern the future of Tongart Hewlett. Do we have an outcome there yet? Bruce,
0: evening. Um, I'm not entirely sure what the outcome was at this particular point. Um, I know it was uh, basically the business rescue vote on whether to accept the final offer from the full remaining consortium, like you mentioned, the Vision Consortium, um, which I suppose is crucial to whether this company can be saved. It was, like you said, there were 70 odd bidders at one point, and now it's shrunk to, last week there were two, and now there's one. So I suppose, you know, the future of Tonga does depend on this. And it's not just, it's not just this particular company, which was listed on JSE. It's, it's, you know, the entire northern region of KZN. It's 20,000 farmers who sell their cane to it. So it's a big, it's a big deal.
1: No, it's an absolutely huge deal, Rob. And, I mean, again, this is touch and go for Tongard Hewlett. What if the business rescue practitioners don't accept Robert Goumede's bid? He is, the, of course, the, the principal player within Vision Group. Um, what happens then? Does the company get broken up? What happens to the farmers? What happens to the sugarcane standing in the fields? Well,
0: that's the thing. I mean, then the business rescue practitioners would have to go back and revisit the plan and decide whether to break up the individual parts of the business into, say, the Mozambican operation, Zimbabwean operation, South African, but that's that's a process that doesn't seem to have attracted the kind of bridges that they want. There's this massive debt at Tonga, which was accumulated over many years, which needed to be settled, and I think you needed to have a comprehensive solution. That's what the business rescue guys thought was the best idea, is you have a comprehensive single buyer that can take over the whole debt, take over the profitable businesses in Mozambique and Zimbabwe, which are you know, quite good operations and probably better than South African operation, and, um, and from there make it possible. So, you know, at this point, with a single bidder remaining, you know, the shareholders and debtors are probably hoping that this vote this is successful. And it seems like as much as there's, there's no competing offer, it might be the best thing to do at this particular point.
1: Rob Rose is editor at the FM. Thank you, Rob Rose, for bringing us up to speed on that one. Another big story that was brewing this time yesterday and then burst into the public domain, much to the joy of so many people on my sort of contact list on my phone. I got a bunch of messages going, have you seen, have you seen, have you seen Bitcoin? Bitcoin's gonna be part of the ETF structure. The Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States has, uh, has okayed the, uh, the regulation of ETFs in Bitcoin. And I immediately saw a red flag and so I did a little bit of research myself and I've just seen this huge volatility in Bitcoin over the last 24 hours. There was a post on X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, that the Securities and Exchange Commission had okayed the listing of ETFs in the United States and the price of Bitcoin jumped and then when the SEC came out and said, oops, sorry, it looks like our account's being hacked. Somebody's pasted fake news on our account. It's not yet been approved. We then saw the price of Bitcoin plummet. Uh, A false post appearing on the SEC's official X account shortly after, uh, what, about nine o'clock GMT last night. And so uh, the post said, the regulators granted approval for Bitcoin ETFs For listing on all registered national securities exchanges. It looked compelling. I saw the post and I went, oh, that's interesting. But it was immediately picked up and quoted by social media users, business news outlets all over the place. And this thing caught fire. It really did. But then, a couple of minutes later, the chair of the SEC, Gary Gensler, posted a message saying, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We cannot possibly. Cannot possibly um, keep running it on this particular front. No, it looks like we have been hacked. We've not approved the listing and uh, Bitcoin exchange traded products, and the price fell. So the pressure is clearly on the SEC to get these products over the line. I'm anticipating it's going to happen very soon. The Money Show.
3: The Markets.
1: Patrick Matidi, Market Commentator, Chief Investment Officer at Alawani Capital Partners, the Head of Equities there. Uh, Patrick Matidi, would you be committing money to a Bitcoin ETF when it's approved? I'm not saying if it's approved, when it's approved, because I I anticipate it will be approved and possibly fairly soon. Yeah, good evening, Bruce. And uh, once again,
4: thanks for having me. Unlikely, uh, especially if it's pensioners' money. Um, one, because currently our regulation won't allow it. Uh, but secondly, because I think one, will understand, you know, the mechanics and the technicalities behind it. But having said that, though, I must confess at a personal level, I have owned Bitcoin. Um, I had, <sighs> I do have some exposure, uh, largely out of curiosity, which at some point uh, it appeared that it was a bad mistake, you know, given the volatility and how it actually performed. And then I got some redemption last year when it actually did well. So, as part of my diversified, you know, let's say holdings, I would have some, you know, little exposure. But uh, for more conservative pensioner money, uh, which is what I do on a day-to-day basis, unlikely to actually, um, you know, sort of touch it at this point in time.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And uh, it's, I mean, I I think I've got 75 rands worth of Bitcoin. I was gifted some by somebody on a currency, on a Bitcoin trading platform, also for for a curiosity perspective. And I think it went from 100 to 200 rand and I felt like a genius for holding uh, cryptocurrency for a while. Then it fell to about 25 rand and I went, yeah, I knew it. And it's got around 75 rand of what the value was when I first got it. And so I remain underwhelmed uh, personally anyway. Um, Talk to me then about HCI which came with a trading update today and the market really wasn't very happy with it at all.
4: No, it wasn't. Uh, So they came up with a trading update but uh, also they withdrew uh, a caution that they've had for a while. Uh, which means that you know whatever transaction they were actually um, you know sort of eyeing uh, that has since uh, been pulled back. So, so I guess the market was disappointed both with the trading update but also with the uh, lack of, uh, I guess, a prospect on the on the m side, uh, which hopefully would have unlocked you know some value had actually gone through
1: yeah uh yeah because you know that makes a bit more sense I mean HCI has been a juggernaut of a share price performance it's very illiquid of course and the share price moves uh, very very strongly and yeah to today to see it pull back as sharply as it did was quite concerning um, talk to me then about the update from JP was it JP Morgan that has downgraded its price view on Sassel because there were two big price moves that seemed inexplicable when they first happened And then the news leaked out certainly as far as Sassel was concerned that there was a price a, re, a re-rating on the price of sassel we also saw sappy come under pressure on the day i wonder if somebody else has issued a note around that
4: yeah so i mean every now and then you know you do get investment bankers and stock brokers uh, issuing uh, their views on particular stocks uh, which uh, especially if they've got a huge following you know that can move the market so I think if you look at so so over and above that uh, you know downgrade it has been under quite some some pressure, especially if you look at it you know for the year to, to 2023 and a few days also in 2024 a large portion of it uh, clearly is the oil price itself you know that has not done that well you know over that, that the last while and then secondly you know you've had a lot of uh the ESG issues Uh, Where there are CO2 emissions and their plans to can you know eradicate that and actually uh, limit that, given the targets. Uh, those have been questioned, especially the capital commitment that is required, you know, to actually bring uh, down those uh, emissions uh, to acceptable levels. And I think also, you know, if you look at the business, uh, a lot of changes uh, in terms of the leadership. So quite a bit of uncertainty there. But I think looking forward, though, I think uh, what we're seeing is another year where it is likely that the oil price won't do as well. Uh, the U.S. is actually producing a lot more than they actually need and therefore exporting, which means that, you know, you're likely to have, you know, an oversupply of oil into the global market and then you also like to have I suppose that on the other side opec you know flexing the muscle and trying to hold the prices are steady but so far you know the oil prices have been quite a, you know, quite a bit of pressure uh, which also does uh, you know lean
1: against the SASO in terms of its prospect and how they make money. <laughs> Thank you. Patrick Martidi. Patrick is the head of equities at Aluwani Capital Partners. Anglo American nowadays owns De Beers, of course. Now, De Beers is the, one of the world's biggest producers of natural diamonds, and it's going to invest another billion dollars to extend the life of the Joaneng mine in Botswana. Botswana, the world's biggest diamond producer, and there is the joint venture between De Beers and the Botswana government they were exploiting those diamond resources there was a huge downturn last year in diamond demand and uh, uh, of course there's huge pressure on from lab grown diamonds too But Anglo-American, Botswana government, they jointly own the Botswana Diamond Company. They've approved the spending, which is going to convert the Jwaneng pit into an underground operation. So they're going deeper and looking for fresh, rough diamonds. Not too much demand in recent months. Certainly India, which is the cutter and polisher nowadays of 90% of the world's diamonds, has been asking miners to cut back on supply to try and manage the stocks of diamonds. De Beers, however, looking through this particular crisis and saying well at some point demand will return for uh, cut and polished diamonds so let's extend the life of the Joaneng mine in Botswana. I think that's a good news story.
0: Bruce Whitfield on The Money Show.
1: 6 to 8pm I see on Black Coffee's uh, Twitter feed this evening a statement saying that he's been hurt in an accident but he's recovering. And is looking forward to being with everybody again soon. Black Coffee, one of South Africa's great talent exports, of course, he performs gigs all over the world. Fabulous DJ is Black Coffee involved in what is the, his website, his Twitter page describes as a severe travel accident on a flight en route. So, in a severe travel accident on a flight en route, so not a plane crash, a travel accident on a flight. His scheduled show at Mar del Plata. The incident resulted in unforeseen complications and left him with some injuries. We can confirm that he is receiving the best possible medical attention and is surrounded by supportive family and team, says the statement. And then it's the usual requests for privacy. Now, a little bit of Googling, because that's what you do when you're trying to piece together a vague story. And it does appear as if there was an incident involving an aircraft in Mar del Plata this week. Um, and there was... And now it disappears the fly Bondi Boeing seven three seven eight hundred flying from Buenos Aires to Mar del Plata in Argentina touched down hard on the runway at the uh, um, on runway thirty one on the 6th of january it suffered a tail strike as well the report says that the aircraft rolled out with any further incident there were no reported injuries but the aircraft sustained sustained substantial damage now it's the only report that i can find of an incident at Mar del plata involving an airplane i don't know whether or not Black Coffee was on that particular aircraft that had a hard landing and a tail strike, but certainly if he was on that flight, it is, yeah, he suffered an injury, which is uh, not pleasant. We are told that he is recovering. We are told he'll be fine. We are told that he's looking forward to being back with you if you're a fan of Black Coffee and his gigs. um Hopefully, all is going to be well. You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702 on to issues of maintenance if you've ever had a leak in your roof at home and you've ignored it and you've gone oh it's just a small leak and you go out for the day and you come back and the entire ceiling has collapsed over your newly carpeted lounge which has got your brand new furniture that you haven't yet insured and you just look at this catastrophe of mess and you very quickly understand the consequences of not doing proper repairs and maintenance in South Africa, we're seeing the massive cost of reinvestment in neglected infrastructure, and that's going to happen over decades to come. It's going to happen at Transnet. It's going to happen across many state-owned enterprises, particularly at ESCOM. We saw today the Electricity Minister, Josie Ramahopa saying that we need to be much quicker in delivering new transmission infrastructure to connect more megawatts to the grid uh, than the current development plan. ESCOM's plans recently have been severely criticized for being inadequate in dealing with the extent of our power crisis. But Hossian uh, Zoramahopa telling journalists this week that ESCOM plans to build 1,400 kilometers of new transmission lines over the next three years, but those aren't enough. We need 6,000 to be built over this period. It sounds like a shambles. It sounds like an appalling planning and and contingency planning. Let's get the view this evening of Professor Samsung, uh, Samson Mabweli. Uh, prof, welcome to The Money Show this evening. The prof is at the South African National Energy Development Institute. And I suppose this is the consequence of nearly two decades of massive underinvestment, not only in generation, but in transmission, getting the electricity from where it is created to where it needs to go
5: yes um good evening to you and the listeners um yeah so this is a there's, there's a transmission backlog of about uh, 14,000 kilometers and then um, the the issue now is uh with the, the the when we bring in new generation capacity uh especially in areas such as the eastern cape the northern cape and the western cape where we've got uh, the most solar and wind resource um, the the grid gets congested. Um, you'll recall that uh, during BID window 6, uh, the Minister of um, Mineral Resources and Energy, um, Mr. Nguede Mantashe, couldn't announce about 3,200 megawatts or so uh, of projects that were supposed to have been con- connected um, in, in those provinces, uh, mainly because of grid constraints and that is now adding a lot of pressure on the on the national electricity grid so that is why escom needs to build about 14000 kilometers of um, of grid but their balance sheet as it stands uh, it can only uh, allow them to build um, 1400 kilometers in the next 3 years and um, the, the the reality is that uh, they, they we need and immediately, about uh, six thousand kilometers of, uh, uh, of, of of grid capacity. So that's the the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, Dr. Ramukopa is working on the on the the plan um, that he has presented to cabinet, which he needs to tweak to here and there according to, to cabinet, and then go back to cabinet in terms of uh, how to deal with this particular uh, aspect going forward.
1: Um, Why has the planning been so poor around this? We've known of the crisis for such an awfully long time. We've had multiple management teams. We've had um, some better than others over that period of time. And it's become very, very clear that the underinvestment has got terribly negative consequences. Suddenly, we've got to find money not only for new new generation of electricity, but now for a vast amount of transmission and, and an amount of transmission that doesn't seem to have been adequately budgeted for.
5: That is correct. So the, what happened was that in the past, um, ESCOM was warned through the, the white paper on, on renewable energy um, that was published way back in, in 2003. Uh, and, 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 and then they started, they focused more on the, on, on, on the new generation capacity, uh, which was the Midupi and Kusile new build uh, program. Uh, we know uh, that uh, those programs did not go, uh, you know, as planned, and uh, most of the the challenges that that were associated with the with the two programs were, were basically resolved now under the current uh, administration led by President Ramaphosa. Um, otherwise, we could have been in a, in the worst kind of a situation. And 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 what happened was that uh, they, 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 there was nothing that was planned on the on the transmission grid part of things. Uh, and and government and escom woke up to to realize that uh we really need uh, you know this um, uh, grid capacity and then escom came up with a plan they did, they collected some studies and then they came up with a grid expansion program uh they did some work here and there but uh, you know some of the the, the the infrastructure is is now old it Needs to be to be uh, to 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 be maintained some transformers need to be changed, and and some power lines need to be to be changed, and things like that. All that adds to the fourteen thousand kilo uh, kilometers that uh, ESCOM yeah. you know, needs to build
1: now. We've got any idea of how this is going to get paid for, um, Prof? I mean, it's a it's an enormous bill to have to absorb all at once, particularly considering the state of ESCOM's finances, the state of uh, public finances generally. Yeah,
5: so what what I think would happen is that there will be various models um, that the, the Minister of Electricity will present. Um, one of the models that I expect could be the, the build, operate and transfer model where the, the private sector, because I've heard him talking a lot about, uh, you know, tapping into private sector liquidity. And the only way to tap into private sector liquidity is to, to go for the build, operate and transfer model where the private sector will come in and build the, 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 the grid, the, the power lines, and then operate them charging ESCOM or, or government uh, for, for, for a particular period. It could be, it can be 10 years, it can be 15 years, it can be 20 years, depending on when they will reach their break-even point or when they will get their return on investment. And and once they, they get their return on investment and then making the, uh, after making also the minimum uh, allowable kind of profit that can be uh, approved by the National Energy Regulator. They can then transfer that infrastructure back to the nation through either government or through ESCOM, and then the infrastructure can then be used for, 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 for the rest of its life, um, you know, g- giving the benefits to the nation as well. That, for me, is the only uh, model that I see. Three, that involves the private sector. If we were, we are to take into the private sector liquidity, otherwise the other model could be government must find money uh, and and go for the normal government tenders and then build the infrastructure. That one can can take long and it can, it can have uh, so, so many other challenges. Uh, if we go for the private sector investment, the build operate and transfer model, and other kind of models. Uh, we, we may be able to do, uh, to get the, the grid capacity that we require within a year or within
1: a period of two years. Prof, thank you very, very much indeed for explaining that to us so clearly. Professor Samson Mambueli, who, uh who is a commentator on uh, the electricity situation in South Africa. He is part, of course, of the South African National Energy Development Institute. In a moment, good news on the Robos front. Good. We like rooibos. Well, not everybody likes Robos, but China cutting Robos tariffs by more than half. Uh, does it have an impact? How will it help? and how will it impact sales of Robos in what is potentially one of the world's biggest markets for an indigenous product? That's coming up next. 702. Bruce is on the money show. Now I love Robos. I'm sure you love Robos. But I fully accept it's not everybody's cup of tea.
3: <laughs>
1: anyway, yes, that's a bad joke, isn't it? Um, yes, the we'll, we'll get to that one in just a moment, of course. Uh, APSA CIB, one of the best research houses on the JSC Spire Awards for the sixth year running, proudly brings you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Bruce Whitfield
3: on The Money Show.
1: 6 to 8 p.m uh we're going to talk to martin berg the chairperson at the sa Roybos council good news for the Roybos industry china agreeing to cut rooibos uh, tariffs by more than half i'm trusting blindly that martin berg the chairperson of the sa Roybos council is with us martin good evening your
3: trust is justified bruce i am with you yes hi
1: good I I do love a little bit of blind faith. That's what we like. Um, Why have the Chinese agreed to make this move?
3: Well, Bruce, I think we must start from the point is that rooibos is is a very small industry globally, and virtually every country in the world has no tariff on rooibos. The Chinese for many years have had a 30% tariff on rooibos, which is absolutely exorbitant and extortionist. But we've managed to persuade them that they should reduce that to 6%. So, in fact, it's not hard. It's gone from 30% tariff to 6% tariff. So, yes, we are very happy.
1: What does that mean then, I know, per kilogram of roibos? Is it a substantive saving?
3: Um, on average, the price to China so is probably four US dollars per kilogram. So... Uh, it it to to the Chinese customer it could be twenty five percent. We're working r- rough numbers, so yeah, it could it could be up to a dollar a kilogram.
1: Um, is that significant in the world of robots? Uh in terms of does it make a significant difference between those who might be put off by the price point in China of Robos versus willing people then willing to uh, willing to at least try the product uh, for the first time.
3: That's a very interesting and complex question. Um, the price of rooibos is mostly determined by supply and demand from the supply side, uh, and and at the demand side is fairly price inelastic. So, uh, obviously, the price to the Chinese importer who will be the Packer branded distributor in China is going to go down. Whether his price to the consumer goes down, we will see in time. And whether that will lead to higher consumption of robust, we will see in even more time. We certainly hope so.
1: What are the volumes to China like at the moment? I mean, in terms of your global consumption of robust, how much of the robust production that is exported from South Africa ends up in China?
3: It's it's very small at this stage, and it's very. We've been exporting to China for a long, long time, but getting your product through Chinese customs has been particularly trying. So at the moment, um, imports into China are 300 odd tons out of a total export from South Africa of 9,000 tons. So okay. all the three, 4% of South Africa's robust exports go to China right now. Uh, if the whole importing structure changes and if the ports become if the the port authorities become more amenable if the six percent is is implemented properly we hope that will go up significantly
1: i just saw a statement today from the department of traded industry and i think they were desperately looking for some good news and sort of saying china has halved its tariffs Yes, it's nice that they've halved their tariffs, but it's not necessarily the game changer that is required perhaps to make inroads into what could be potentially a massive market for robots if you could just get your claws into the market properly and get people to sample the stuff and, and use it.
3: That's 100% correct, Bruce. This this is important. What has happened with the tariff and all of that, that's important. The homic- hom- harmonized systems code the HS code being implemented properly um, will be important but the the big uh, win will be if distribution and and just general uh, public relations on Roybus within China is is picked up.
1: Um, which is your biggest market at the moment Martin who are the biggest fans of Roybus beyond South Africa's borders?
3: Oh, Japan by a long way the Japanese oh, really? the Japanese have been cons- <clears throat> have been consuming more and more robots it grows every year uh Japan imports over three thousand tons of the nine thousand tons so yeah sure. Japan is sitting at about 35 35 percent of our total exports um the next biggest country is Germany which is at less than half of that yeah
1: I mean, and you export nine thousand tons. How much robots is consumed in South Africa over year?
3: Also, uh, no, in in southern Africa, also southern. about nine thousand tons. Okay, um, and so so of the rest of that, it's probably eight thousand more or less in South Africa and a thousand north of our borders.
1: So we kind of at peak rooibos probably in South Africa. So the export markets are critical in terms of growth for an industry, which of an indigenous crop that has got you know, certainly global application. And, you know, maybe the distribution of Boss Tea and other products going onto supermarket shelves in more and more countries. We spoke to the, the guys who run Boss Tea in our Genius Podcast series last year, and they're massively ambitious, of course, to get their finished product onto shelves everywhere. So you've got some nice support.
3: Yeah, it, it, the export market is critical, you know, for, for South African agriculture on the whole, the export market is critical because we trade in hard currency when we're exporting. So financially, the export markets are critical. But also, as you said, the potential growth um, is mostly, mostly in the export markets. The South African consumption of rooibos grew very well until three or four years ago when the when the economy took a tank uh, and and has stagnated but most agricultural consumption in south africa has stagnated
1: fascinating insights as always martin thank you very much indeed chair of the sa rooibos council so, the Chinese are getting a price cut on South African rooibos. They import about 3% of exports, so a massive growth opportunity. But I saw a statement today from Ibrahim Patel at the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition. Yep, the banking inquiry sort of sits under him, I suppose, uh, the one that failed. Uh, and uh, you kind of get a sense that they're looking for good news stories. And yes, it is good news that tariffs are being halved. Uh, but it's not that much of a good news story because most countries around the world don't charge tariffs on robust. the chinese now cutting from 30 to 15 percent is progress but it's not the silver bullet the panacea of all ills after eyewitness news we've got business unusual we've got wendy nola and an unusual shape shifter for you this evening very colorful and effervescent little history of a south african startup that went global in the 1990s it's a little bank called investec more about that coming up in the next hour
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: Let's walk the talk on 92.7
0: and 106 FM.
1: Apsa CIB, winner of the Best Research House at the JSE Spire Awards for the sixth year in a row, proudly brings you The Money Show. Apsa is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. We're going to be talking about uh, success and how we perceive success and what success really means uh, Moyo, the organizational behavioral specialist with us uh, this evening and i'm looking forward to that particular chat and then wendy nola and a tale a deep dive into the story of growth expansion audacity courage and a whole lot of cheek coming up between half past seven and eight o'clock this evening here on the money show the money
3: show
0: with bruce whitfield on 702 702
1: Elon Musk has probably been working for, what, the last 30 years or so? So who's more successful, him or a nursery school teacher who's taught five-year-olds every year for the same period of time? If you think that a class of five-year-olds, 20, let's give her credit for 20 kids a year, 600 kids over a career of 30 years. Who's been more successful? Who can look back at their career with, more satisfaction. I think there must be some nursery school teachers who can put up their hand and claim to have made a greater contribution to society than Elon Musk has done. But how do we f- define career satisfaction and success? C Moyo, the organisational behavioural specialist, is with us this evening. How do we assess success in this context? Who's more successful? The nursery school teacher or Elon Musk? CP where, there's a good question for you to kick off the ear.
6: Good evening, boys. Such a great question. Uh, Absolutely. I think there's so many of us who would love to be Elon Musk, um, but as you say, there are so many other necessary teachers who would argue that they are far more successful, or at least they are satisfied with what they are doing. I think the the main point here is that you know people who study career success generally, Bruce, they differentiate between what they call objective career success and subjective career success. So many of us when we talk success, we normally talk about these so-called objective career success, which refers to measurable and tangible accomplishment in one's career. So I have a promotion, I have a salary increase, I'm getting awards, I'm getting recognition. And and this is why this is how we generally major success when we look at comparing each other um, all over the world but on the other hand subjective career success is how satisfied you are with your own success so it's personal it's individualized it relates to how fulfilled you are and there's really no doubt that there's so many people who are starting to ask themselves some serious question questions about, am I really, really successful? And there comes a point where there's a particular threshold when you've had uh, enough money, at least to cover your basic needs, where you start asking yourself these questions around objective career success. Uh, you start wanting to want things like work-life balance, satisfaction, fulfillment, and, and I guess alignment with your personal values.
1: Yeah, exactly right. I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day and somebody was saying the only way to become truly satisfied in life is to lower your expectations. And I thought, my goodness me, who wants to do that? Um, There are lots of (laughs) myths around what makes success. There are lots of myths around if you get more money, for example, then you will feel validated and successful. Does money Mm -mm. contribute to that happiness?
6: it does, uh, up to a certain point, up to a certain threshold. There's really no doubt that compensation is important. If I'm earning 100,000 rand per annum, and you add maybe 20,000 rands, it would mean really so much to me, uh, because the the impact of money uh, on my particular happiness at that particular time is very, very important. Uh, but after that particular threshold where I, I have my needs met, um, so there are other things that become far more uh, meaningful, far more important to me, as I said, around meaningful work, around positive relationships at work. You know, there are certain people who have such great relationships at work. Work seems to uh, be fun. Work seems to be a place where they catch up with some friends. Yes, get work gets done. But work doesn't become this toil that they they avoid all the time. So once you've reached certain needs and up to a certain threshold, the impact of money is no longer as significant.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of weird. I mean, you know, we all want to be paid. And we all want to be earning well. And we all want to – We we kind of – feel that we are validated by our organisation, by the amount of money that ends up in our pay packet once a month. But if you go into work every single day feeling absolutely miserable and not getting on with your colleagues and not liking the environment in which you're in, it does take away any kind of benefit of the money, I'm afraid. That, you know, the money is a short-term win. Um, the sustaining, the, the happiness at work is truly about the environment and the collegial experience and the sort of boss that you've got. Um, a lot of people say, right, well, success is defined by the fact that you can climb the greasy pole of corporate success more easily and more successfully than others. And they wear it like a badge of honor. They get to the exco and they say, mm-hmm. look, I am truly successful. And only then do they realize how miserable and lonely and tough it can be in that in that environment. Uh, again, corporates, you know, you're getting massive promotions and being put in charge of lots of stuff is a sign of ability, but is it a sign of satisfaction? I wonder.
6: Yeah, I, I was listening to this interview, uh, and someone was interviewing Lucas Hradek, the famous uh, yes. Lucas Hradek, who played football for Leeds United for many many years. And they were asking him questions. Apparently, when Lucas Kabba was playing for Leeds, um, Manchester United at that time, coached by the great Sir Alex Ferguson, knocked on his on, on the Leeds door, wanting to sign mm-hmm. Lucas Kabba. And Lucas Kabba had said no at the particular time. So someone was asking them in in aura, "How can you say no to the great Alex, <laughs> Alex Ferguson? You would have earned more money, more prestige at Man United." And Lucas Kabba simply said, "This, I was happy at Leeds." United. I was getting more satisfaction and what I was, I felt that what I was doing was equal. And when you look uh, in retrospect now at the impact that Lucas has done at Leeds, at how they honour him, at how uh, he, oh, he has, love them, everything is named yeah. after him you start understanding uh, that there are certain calls that you have to make uh, when you think about your success and you have to be so authentic and, and, and true to yourself about what really does matter.
1: I wonder, and Lucas, if you're listening, if that was the right call in retrospect. I mean, you know, what is it, 15, 20 years later, don't you wish you'd taken the money? I wonder. I'm really cur- I'd am really i be really <laughs> curious about that, actually. Producers, let's get Lucas. Um Variety, Um, you know, people get stuck in dead end jobs and they get really miserable about it. But I I find, I find that by really amplifying what you do at work and not just doing the job of work at work, but truly connecting to people, not only within your your own organization, but really getting some depth across multiple organizations and building networks. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that is also not a really satisfying sort of side hustle, if you like, of your
6: job, of, of really connecting with the world more broadly. Yeah, that uh, is absolutely crucial, Bruce. In fact, the the term we study in organizational behavior is something called job embeddedness, and, and job embeddedness refers to the idea of how embedded you uh in your specific job in your specific organization in other words all the relationships that you have are there all um you've put just everything in in one organization and and you are not networking maybe with industry professional police and people in other organization and there's there's a clear link that people who are highly embedded in in jobs they they do well they're proficient and they are they are very competent because they've been doing this for for a while. There comes that time when it affects your satisfaction because uh, you are not really exposing yourself to many horizons, learning from other people. So the idea of having uh, career adaptability and and just understanding that the world is bigger than what you do, meeting other people in other relationships, listening to people who did not study what you study or what you specialize in, give you the different perspective in life. That tends to give you a more breath and that breath keeps you excited in your own work when you go back to it.
1: Yeah, it, it's so fascinating, this world work. It really is. <sighs> a lot of people job hop. A lot of people go for either they they just don't like their environment, they don't like their boss, and that's the most often the reason why people do job hop is that they really struggle to relate to the person who is put in charge of them. They don't choose that person. That person is, uh, they're told, you report there, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But often job hopping is as an, but just an attempt to try and raise your income. Um, And most companies will pay what they can get away with in terms of employees. Um, Very seldom do people feel fairly remunerated. And I wonder whether job hopping to advance your career, advance your income, advance your status is a good or a bad
6: strategy. Yeah, I think uh, many people will tell you that a few years ago we frowned upon uh, job hopping at any level so if you looked at someone's cv and they attempted uh, to change jobs at about three years or so much we would, would kind of like label them as a job hopper and never want to chat to them ever again but there's some interesting research coming out that that indicate that strategic change in a job can be very beneficial for career growth. Moving to new roles, for example, you're moving from a support role and you want to get to a profit and loss uh, division to understand ultimately if maybe running a division, being a managing director, a CEO is your main aim, then that strategic job hoping is, is a really good strategy. And and that also, you know, I uh, gets to uh, all the debates about when you, preparing a leadership team, is it always better to have someone coming from within and from outside? And, and I think you, you had so many of these debates with the CEOs that you interviewed, Bruce, where as much as it is great to, to kind of build your own timber, it also helps to have somebody coming from the outside who are going to look at some of the most um, revered processes, some of the most, most revered that we do and say, why do we do that again? because they are not attached to them. So job hopping at a strategic level, when it makes sense, is a good strategy. But just moving around before you get any depth can harm anyone's career over the long run.
1: CP wisdom as always. Thank you. Career satisfaction and success tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show. Consumer Ninja. Wendy Nola, our consumer ninja with us this evening. Homeowner's insurance. Now, if you don't have insurance on your home, you are a very courageous person. But if you have a bond on your home, you're forced to have homeowner's insurance. And it covers everything on your property that, you know, if you could pick it up and shake out the contents, that's homeowner's insurance. It's the pool, the pump, the gates, the solar panels, the roof, the walls. You should have protection against flooding and fire and... Earthquakes, possibly. I I wonder um, what sort of issues are and are not covered here. Wendy Nola,
7: good evening. Hello, Bruce. Good to be back with you. Um, Yeah, so, interesting one. Uh, The what-ifs include, what if a contractor you've called in to do repairs in your home accidentally causes major damage to the structure of your home would you have a valid claim? And I think most people would probably assume they would. But the yeah. answer is, in all likelihood, not. And that leaves us exposed to a very high risk unless we take steps to mitigate that risk. So the case study that prompted this, this discussion uh, comes to us from Ellen. Uh, and she wrote to me about an experience that good friends of hers had. She says, I want to share it with you because everyone, apart from one person that I have spoken to about this, was unaware of the implications of this scenario for themselves. Um, she says, "An insurance cover, this, she's talking about homeowners specifically, or often called property insurance, the, I think building insurance. This issue seems to be treated as uh, very high in the small print and not highlighted. So the family in question. Were having their roof repaired and in the process of repairing the roof the workman one workman using a blow torch what could go wrong set the house on fire <laughs> um as you can imagine and it's i'll get to this but it's apparently not very unusual um so there was quite a bit of damage done the house didn't burn down altogether but um there was some burn fire damage and of course then uh, water damage from the fire hoses that that came onto the scene. So, the family approached their insurer who, after a very long delay and much back and forth, says Ellen, rejected the claim on the basis that the family had to deal rather with the third party who had been contracted to repair their roof. This loss, according to the insurer, fell outside of what the insurance policy covered and in the end, they only had cover for damage to the furniture. But all, you know, the, burnet, the, the the damage to the roof, walls, et cetera, no. So, Ellen, on hearing this, was alarmed, understandably, and she approached her own broker and asked if the cover that her family had on its property excluded damage caused by third parties. And her broker confirmed that, yes, same story, same exclusion. Um, And then the broker provided a schedule which described a few examples of what was not covered under the policy, highlighting a particular section which reads loss or damage damage caused by servicing, maintenance, cleaning, repairing, restoring, dyeing, bleaching, alteration. So I was told that where a third-party service provider is undertaking work on a property, the owner of the property, sorry, I being Ellen, Uh, must ensure that they have questioned them to to find out whether they have the appropriate insurance cover and also to obtain proof of that cover before giving them the go-ahead. And if they don't have the cover and you go ahead anyway, then you're on your own if something like the blowtorch on the roof setting the house on fire happens. Um, And Ellen made the point that her family gives work, they prefer to give work in the home to emerging businesses to support the smaller business and she never thought to ask anyone of them to provide proof of Uh, their insurance cover and she says well what must i do now must i only support the big guys who are more likely to have such insurance um you know she says that she doesn't seem to think well she doesn't think that that's in the spirit of what we should be about in this country at the moment giving a leg up to the to the growing businesses so I thought it was a really important, uh, really interesting and important issue. So I approached the ever helpful and willing to help uh, Christelle Coleman, who is the CEO of Cape Town-based Ami Underwriting Managers, asked what she thought of this. And she said, yeah, very interesting issue. Um, And this example that Ellen's raised does highlight a critical aspect of home owners' insurance policies that many might overlook so she went and looked at her own um, Ami wealth insurance policy and she, it reads uh, under exclusions, any loss or damage caused by storm, wind, hail or snow during renovations, additions or extensions if the loss or damage is caused or made worse or in any way contributed to by these actions. Okay. doesn't say repairs, renovations, additions, extensions. She says yeah. in standard homeowners insurance policies, there's typically a distinction between unforeseen events and damages caused by third parties especially when these parties are contracted hired for property work and she, that's and she agreed w- with what ellen found it's imperative to ensure that the contract you get in has appropriate yeah. insurance coverage um to safeguard i mean the risk could be huge if that house had burned entirely down can you imagine bruce on their own for, no no exactly for but i mean again, things, you have got, got
1: hundreds of Hundreds of thousands of rands worth of damage. Um, you're then inconvenienced. More seriously, who do you then get in to come and fix the 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 damage? Because builders also don't like fixing other people's messes, Um, and it's Mm. yeah, it's it's really important that you cover yourself. And I mean, my bloods run cold on this particular one because you you hire a contractor, you do so in good faith, and you you sort of are you insured? Yeah, of course I'm insured. You're not checking the insurance policy, you're not reading the insurance policy, you're not understanding what your risk is by getting that person to do the job. And if they burn your house down, you can try and sue them. Have you ever tried a sue a builder? You know, good luck uh, with
7: that's, that. That's, yeah. My time, Bunny. So, yeah, the advice is, and thank you, Christelle, is to verify that your contractor has insurance. And and don't just take their word for it. Ask to see it. You must have proof. and Keep a copy of it um, before you, you give the go. If they don't want to do that, then maybe find another contractor. Um, and understand. Go and look at your policy wording on your your um, homeowner's insurance uh, policy document. Look at those ex- exclusions as in any insurance document. Always look at the exclusions um, and look to see what they say about third party third parties doing work on your property. And and yeah, discuss any additional coverage needed during the period of construction or repair work. Talk to your insurer before you do any renovations or repairs and ask you know have that discussion um, or you know we don't think to do this to initiate these discussions and with that recorded and everything you are covering yourself depending on on what they say to you. And yeah she says it might seem strict on the insurer's part, but it's crucial for homeowners to understand that the insurer's responsibility does not extend to covering damages caused by third- party contractors. The owner's onus is on the homeowner to ensure that they're engaging a properly insured contractor. And just finally, Bruce, I don't know if you were wondering, but I was thinking, why would a roof contractor get into your roof or onto your roof, if it's flat, with a blowtorch? And the answer is, and I, of course, went down the Google rabbit hole, that um, (laughs) it's when they are doing a kind of waterproofing called torch Exactly. And a blowtorch is needed to heat… Heat fuse the asphalt material directly onto the roof to to create a waterproof barrier and it, I've seen it, it those I've actually had it in my own home. It's often used on flat roofs where the rainwater can collect and sit for yeah. long periods of time. And as Christelle says, it's it's not uncommon for roofs to catch a light during this process. And I saw lots of cases. America all over where this exactly that happened. So caution retail, not just I mean it's not just blow tr- throw torches in the hands of contractors that can cause these damages it can be anything but fire being your worst and yeah to ask those questions
1: thank you wendy good advice thank you if you are undergoing a renovation wanting to undergo a renovation don't for a moment assume that just because you have homeowners insurance the damage that is caused by an outside party is going to be covered you're not covered by that 99 of the time you need to understand the wording of your policy document if you don't understand the wording of your policy document don't take a chance get you know, call up the call center get your broker to explain it to you and then say right what do i need to do to ensure that should i get a contractor who is negligent careless or has an accident and something goes horribly wrong who pays You need to understand that very, very clearly before you start pouring money into what will become the bottomless pit of your existence. Not that I've been jaded or burned by renovations before, of course, but that's the way these things go. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story.
3: APSA is a registered FSP.